how close to, yeah, so we're, we're a little late, but we will um, try to take full advantage of all the time that we have. Quick question, how many of you all, this is your first night tonight, were not with us last week? Raise your hands high. Okay. We are going to, we would have done this anyways, but this is going to become more important that we do a review. Um, so we are going to get after this. Let me pray and then we will, we will get started. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know uh, that you are Lord of all of the earth, and so you definitely speak to things like politics, and you speak to the 21st century, and you speak to our season right now here in the United States. God, we confess to you that there's a lot of rhetoric and a lot of talk and noise going on, and so we just pray that in some way uh, you might give us wisdom to know how to conduct ourselves in such a time as this. And God, we ask you for your Holy Spirit this morning that what we talk about would be full of wisdom and full of truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, um, well tonight, as you guys look up here, here's kind of the, the agenda for the evening. So we're gonna review a lot of what we talked about last week. So hopefully those of you who weren't with us last week will at least be able to get caught up in some form or fashion. Uh, we're going to have a moment where we're working together in kind of groups of about three with the packets that you have in front of you defining some very important terms. So you guys are going to work uh, with the content right in front of you to try to give some simple definitions to big ideas as political community is one that we'll work towards. Government is another one. And the last one being citizenship. Uh, so we're going to work to define those and imagine a little bit of what those would look like. I'm going to take some time to set some biblical foundations for those ideas, um, what comes out of them. Then we're going to talk about an opportunity you guys have uh, to develop kind of an experiential learning exercise that will be both um, learning oriented and an opportunity for you to practice some of the things that we're learning in here with the hopeful outcome um, that Arcadia may have some groups of people even to work on some specific projects if you're willing to participate in that. And then we will finish uh, our night off like we did last week with an interview of Tom Parker, uh, who's here in the back, as you guys will see him here in a bit. Uh, Tom is the director of Fuller Seminary Southwest and also a church planter and has been pastoring for quite a long time and has done a lot of work, biblical scholarship in the work of the prophets and some, some direct work inside of that of the prophets uh, speaking to political powers. So we're going to have a moment to talk to him a little bit as well. So let's uh, go after a review. So if you guys have that, I'm defining that so you know where we're going and kind of can set the trajectory and not feel lost in the night. But here's what we talked about last week. The first one is just why this class? Why would Redemption Arcadia and Redemption Church. Uh, on that note, let me ask you a question. How many of you guys don't go to Redemption Arcadia? Do not. Where, where do you are, you, are you part of a church or just here? Christ Church of the Valley, great. Anybody else here from another church or no church at all? Great. Um, so why would we do a class like this? Here's the first thing is Redemption Church says often that this phrase, that all of life is all for Jesus, all of life is all for Jesus, that the Bible clearly declares that Jesus is Lord of all. 
And so we said a statement that if, if to God, like many Christians pursue, is that God doesn't really care about the arts or he doesn't care about sports or in this particular context, he doesn't really care about politics. And we said if you have a God or a Lord who doesn't have care about the arts, he doesn't care about sports, he doesn't care about politics, or what you fill in the gap, then you actually have a very little Christ who rules over a very little kingdom, right? It's just this kind of spiritual kingdom, and that's it, but that isn't what the Bible says. The Bible says he's Lord of all of the earth, so therefore he's the Lord of all of life. So we feel like it's our responsibility to be creative and biblical at the same time, to say this phrase, how do we pastor or equip our people unto life, unto real life? Now, you know, if you're sitting in this context right now in this political season, politics, whether you like it or not, is a part of your life. You're inundated with it. When you drive down the street, there's signs screaming in your face. Right? There's people who want to talk about it. You turn on the television and it's in your face. That's a practical reality. But we talked about last week that you don't have to live very long in any context, but certainly in ours, to realize that politics affects and is a part of everything. And we're going to get at why tonight. Um, but it's a part of any, anything. So if you want water to come into your house, policy, which therefore politics are a part of it. If you actually want traffic to flow, Politics are a part of that. Governance is a part of that. Policy is a part of that. You know, if you want water, like Tom said last, the last week, in your toilets, uh, policy is a part of that. If you begin to engage on any level, those you have a heart for, so here at Arcadia, refugees or immigrant populations or the poor, you're going to realize really quick that systemic realities, realities of the systems are there and therefore policy and politics matters. So it's a part of life, therefore we feel a responsibility to call you into that and to think biblically about it. So here are what we said the goals of the class are. These are the four goals we're trying to address in four weeks. Um, the first one is this, to create a space for and engage participants in, here's the key phrase, civil discourse and respectful conversation. So we have a goal in this class to create civil discourse and respectful conversation. And like we said last week, that is not typically what you see on the television. As you watch the political pundits or the talk show radio, you know, the radio hosts or the talk show people on TV, respectful conversation is typically not how you would define it. And what you're going to see in a minute what we said last week, we think that's a huge part of the problem in the political gridlock. The next goal is to help participants understand the biblical foundations of Christian political thought and action. Now, that statement alone may jar some of you. Of you, you some of you may feel like, is there really Christian political thought and Christian political action? We would submit to you that we think there is. Um, so we want to help you understand the biblical foundations of that. Three, to help participants understand the theological foundations for Christian political philosophy. So I said two things there. One was the biblical foundations. Another one was the theological foundations. So last week we established, and you're going to see tonight, we're going to go to passages of scripture, Romans 12, Romans 13, to look at the idea of the biblical foundations of government. But at the end of last week, we talked about the idea of a community of individuals and 
community, the idea that we really are, we're individual human beings who live in a community, and we talked about the Trinity in that concept. If you weren't here uh, last week, you're not going to understand that, but the ending of that is a theological thought. It's a theological foundation, so biblical foundations and theological foundations, and then the last one is to begin learning about and discussing current public policies, okay? So we're going to get into that in these four weeks, some current public policies, So here's the method of the class. One is, like you saw last week, we want to have multiple voices and teachers in the midst of that. That's why we're doing interviews. Um, And even people who don't all have the exact same perspective on things. You're not going to get a monolithic perspective um, necessarily regarding policy issues in here or even overall perspectives. That's one of the ways we can exercise civil discourse and respectful conversation. But another one, and this is very important that we said last week that all of you guys need to know, this class is about discernment more than it is mastery. You cannot master Christian political thought or political thought in four weeks. That's an impossibility. I don't want the responsibility upon me as a teacher to develop mastery in you in four weeks. That's impossible. Um, And reality is if you had a whole entire semester, you couldn't do that. But we're trying to develop discernment. So a lot of the topics we're talking about is getting underneath the current problems or the typical ways people think. We're trying to say, why do they think that way? Or last week when we talked about political gridlock that we'll get into a little bit more tonight. Why is there political gridlock? Right? Those are the things. So we are after discernment more than mastery. And here's the other one. We're after character in this class more than competency. Now hear what we're, so what we're not saying. We're not saying that mastery and competency don't matter. They deeply matter. But we're trying to say, in four weeks, we're not going to establish mastery. We want you to be discerning people with character, okay? More than just competency. Because many of us want to talk like we're way more competent than we really are, which the reason we want to do that's a character issue. So hopefully this is going to breed a little bit of humility. You're going to have more mastery, hopefully, when you walk out than when you walked in. More competency when you walk out than when we walked in. But you're not going to walk out with mastery or competency. We're after discernment and character. So just look at me and shake your heads that you understand that. You guys get that? Which means you're going to have to think. That's what we talked about last week. One of the big problems in our context in our society is people don't want to think. They want things microwaved. So there's people who sit in chairs like you who basically go, just tell me what I believe. Or you're sitting out there going, just tell me who to vote for, pastor. If there's a Christian way to vote, tell me who to vote for. And here's what I'm telling you. We're going to help you be discerning, but you have to think. You have to work. Our society is going to get worse and worse and worse if we don't have people who think. Okay? I I had a moment, um, and I may have said this last week, and if I did, it's worth saying again. I had a moment with a large group of people that I knew many of them were going, just tell me what to believe, just tell me who to vote for. And I'm sitting there listening to this man speak who was giving an incredible amount of wisdom, and you could just see people like on their phones clicking around, you know, and then they'd kind of look, and then they'd gaze out, and they, you know, they may have been taking notes, but I know most of them were surfing the web, and they didn't want to think, and I knew, I could just feel, they just wanted to be told what to do, and I, I had this thought, now this is really strong, but this is what I thought, I went, if this really is where we're at, that people won't think, they want to be incredibly comfortable, they want it to be so convenient, they, and they don't want to think, 
this is ripe for how somebody like Hitler rises to power. And, and hear what I think. That sounds really radical, but here's the deal. If you have a bunch of people that all they want is bumper sticker slogans, they're not very discerning, they don't have a lot of character, and they really want comfort and convenience, and they don't want to think. I'm telling you, when power comes on the scene, they don't want to be uncomfortable, they don't want to be inconvenienced, they give you trite statements, over-promise on something, and people go, that's it! And then all of a sudden, sit like Germany. Like, if you go to Germany now and you mention that type, nobody wants to talk about it because they're so radically ashamed of it. Now, I'm not, I'm just telling you, we, what we want to develop in here is discernment, which necessitates thinking. The last thing is this, that this is going to be experiential a little bit more than maybe some of you are comfortable with, but that's essential because what we're, one huge part of what we're talking about is community, is that our problem we're dealing with is that people don't know how to function in community and live amongst each other and talk about hard issues. So we're going to force you guys at some moments to have some civil discourse, to have some respectful conversation, to work together in the midst of this. So rather than just being the person who sits individually in Starbucks and goes, those people in Congress can't get anything done because they don't like each other and they can't talk to each other, we're going to go, okay, in micro form, let's practice it together. Let's cross the aisles and talk about issues together, and you're going to develop a little bit of sympathy of how challenging these things are, how um, nuanced and complex many of these policy issues are, and all that, but it's going to be a little more experiential um, in the midst of it. So that's part of the review. Here's what the topic we dealt with last week was political gridlock. Political gridlock, and what we said fundamentally we developed kind of a, a process. We're asking you guys questions of things that you were frustrated with, but the idea of that there really is a political gridlock in our country right now, and we tried to ask the question of why. Why was there such a significant amount of political gridlock? And we came down, one was this issue of civility, that we don't live in a very civil world, and we see it a lot in our conversation, that people no longer can sit down, be respectful one another, hear each other out, and walk out and respect each other. So you hear a lot, and if you guys have listened to much on television about politics at all, you'll hear these stories about people in Congress saying it used to be, when I got into this thing 15 to 20 years ago, we would vehemently disagree on the floor of the Congress, but we'd walk out and have a beer together afterwards. Now, nobody does it because every, everybody's smearing each other's character, they're talking about things, they're tearing each other down. There's just an overall deep lack of civility, which I would say, and this was brought up last week, that isn't just defined in our political arena, but it's defined in overall culture. There's just a lack of respect and a lack of civility. And so we talked about what we need desperately, which we're going to push into more in the next few weeks, is what we called convicted civility. And this comes out of um, a book, the phrase, comes out of a book written by Richard Mao that we're really encouraging you guys pick up if you can, called Uncommon Decency. And the argument of what we need is convicted civility, is many people who would champion civility would champion it in such a way to say, can't we all just get along? And it's very trite, and it's very fluffy, and it basically, as they pursue civility alone, like can't we all just get along type civility, it basically comes down to your convictions don't really matter, your beliefs don't really matter, 
policy's really not that important. Can't we all just get along? And the reality is, no, not in that way we can't just all get along. Like, this is big-time stuff that has massive implications. So we need to be civil with one another, but we need to have conviction. We need to be convicted in our beliefs, have civility so that we can have conversations to it for the end that we can develop policies, solutions to problems that actually make our overall country, the public commons, a better place. So that was one of the issues we talked about is that there's incivility in the world. We need civility and specifically convicted civility. So people with convictions can live in this world and function together in a civil way. The next issue has a lot to do with that, but we said the fundamental issue was individualism. Now, hear what I mean by that. You guys will hear stuff like this a lot. We use the illustration. Tom Schrader was with us last week, and he said this. He has this, it paints the picture perfectly. He said he was watching the Republican National Convention, and Mitt Romney said the phrase, you deserve, right? He's speaking to the American people. You deserve 60 times, 60 times, you deserve, you deserve, you deserve. Tom called me that night and he said, the line that made JFK famous, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country, he said, wouldn't even sell in today's culture. Okay, you, you understand these people are trying to get elected, right? So they're trying to give you all what you want. And they know what you want is to hear, you deserve, you deserve, you deserve. Tom then said this phrase to me, which he said last week um, when he was telling the story. He said, we now have a country of 400 million, right? That's about the size of our country. 400 million special interest groups. Like every individual is a special interest group in and of themselves. And people are making the decision on who they vote for based upon, what does he do for me? What is he? So that's now what I'm trying to say to you is it's such an individualism. Being an individual is not bad, but individualism, where that becomes the main thing to you, you are the main thing, is you're going to see today is you're no longer, you're not a citizen at that point. Because a citizen means you're a part of a community. You're just an individual fighting for your rights. And if we have 350 million to 400 million people fighting for their rights alone, you no longer have what we're going to get at today, a public community or a political community. You don't have that. You have 400 million individuals. And so the way we would say this is just an overall sense of selfishness with no category. Now, now hear me when I say this. No category for the public commons or other language with that would be for the common good. Our vision is stuck on the individual good, but no longer the common good or the public commons. We, the reality is, guys, we live in a public commons. We live in spaces and places and neighborhoods and homes with multiple people. It's real, but if we no longer have a category for that, and I would argue, I don't even think people have an imagination for it anymore. So that's one of the reasons when I put up here, I said define and imagine what these phrases are. We no longer even have an imagination for it, which you can see the problems if now we're trying to govern a place with 350 to 400 million individuals and not a community or a nation or a public commons. Does that make sense? 
Tell me, that's the review from last week. Any questions? If you weren't here last week, that's a, I know that's a lot of stuff, and we, we opened it up a little bit more, but can you see what we were, those were two issues. We're not saying those are the only two issues at political gridlock, but we're trying to get underneath and develop discernment to go, what's really underlying all of this problem? Is it just that that guy doesn't believe like me, or he doesn't believe like my favorite political spokesperson, or is there something deeper in this that's creating a huge amount of gridlock? Questions? Frank. I do, yes. Um, uh, yep. Great, thanks, Frank. Sorry, I know that's off topic. No, no, that's perfect. I, I want everybody to have that. Anybody have thoughts even on that, not just questions? Thoughts? Would the church be considered that? Yeah, I mean, the statement, that, that, that's basically a metaphor for the individualism is what we're saying. Is essentially we're going, you know, I mean, and that's why that front part's so important to say is, is the statement, and these are strong statements, I get it, not, but of could JFK's language of ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country that made him famous, that people bought into and that resonated. The statement of now you have guys saying you deserve 60 times. Now, let me say this again. These guys are trying to win. You understand that, okay? Like, you understand that. So they are giving us what they think we want. So in that culture and in that time, these people believed what's gonna resonate with the American people is a statement like, Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And that's going to rally people. Now, people are saying that very little, anything like that. And they're saying, you deserve, you deserve, you deserve. The nature, and we're going to get at this today, the nature of politics, of the civitas, of the public arena, the very definition of the term means the common good, the public space beyond the individual. And what, what, we're, what I'm trying to say in the midst of the 400 million special interest groups is if we no longer have a category for political community, for public community, how in the world can you not have political gridlock if nobody even has an imagination for the civitas, for the polis, right? For the public arena. It's all about us. Like, if, if, that's, if that's even somewhat true, you can get at why there would be political gridlock. Go ahead. Sure, sure. And we'll, totally. And we'll get to that. I, I, there's no question. And this is where he said, the other part, I'm, he said, I'm not saying that's not a problem, but the reality is people have wildly divergent views on what the common good is. So you can make a statement like, we should all be for the common good. That far from solves the issue, right? Because people have divergent views, which is absolutely true, which is why you need to have convicted civility. If we have divergent views and we can't even talk about it, that's a problem. Like that's, it, I'm not saying we're all gonna believe the same thing. That's the whole idea of conviction. You have to hold convictions. And by the way, we have 
held convictions for the history of our country, as have other places when they functioned and governed well. People all hold divergent views and still have moments to get things done specifically. Now, that doesn't mean there's not gridlock in other countries, and I'm not saying the U.S. is worse than other places. I'm trying to say where we sit right now, these are two issues that contribute substantially to political gridlock. So I, I, I don't disagree with that. And one thing we're going to have to do, because we are Christians sitting in here, and as I said, Christian political philosophy, we're going to try to say, what does God really think the common good is? And how does that function in a pluralistic, these will be subsequent weeks, in a pluralistic, many-viewed environment? Bud? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Panner, yeah. So the only way they're going to get into influence. So what Bud's saying is almost in the season we're in right now of elections is people are giving us what, I, what we want. And this is the way a lot of them think through it is I got to give them what they want right now so I can get in a position to actually deal with some of this madness. You know, so give them what they want in order to get there. Now, I, I think that's a very well-taken point. Let me say this before we get into the rest of the night, the guts of what we're going to talk about tonight. We're, we're in here as a church and speaking as the word is authoritative. And so as Christians, we know that in the church, we're called in First Peter, we're going through the series, to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood, declaring the praises of God. So when we start from last week, that means it, inside the church where there are divergent views. Not every view is monolithic in the church on these issues. We have to exemplify convicted civility, and we have to exemplify a communal idea, an ideal, which doesn't negate, and this was the theological point we made at the end of last week on the Trinity, which if you function from the sense of if a triune God created the universe, then he created the universe to be like he is, and he made us in his image, right? So if we're made in the image of a God who is three individuals and yet one, a community of three people who are not exactly alike, that means you can function in a world that is communal, a healthy world is communal and honors the individual, or where the individual is honored and yet lives in a community. That's a theological statement that we believe as Christians, that if a God like that created the world and we are made in his image, is don't hear what I'm saying about the, the communal idea of what we're talking about and be like, my gosh, they're espousing socialism and communism. It's not what we're saying, okay? We are saying that a Christian would value the individual and the communal ideas of how life should ultimately function. So we need to exemplify that one and then here's a pragmatic point, and you're going to see this with the exercise that I give you an opportunity to be a part of if you want to be a part of it, is that we have to begin to do kind of labs, if you will. How can we create labs in which multiple people who don't all just think alike and maybe from different vocational backgrounds 
take a look at an issue, like let's say hypothetically a supercharged issue in our culture would be something like immigration, of what would it be like if churches gathered together somebody from the medical community that this issue affects, somebody from the school system that this issue affects, a border patrol officer who this affects, somebody who serves in a nonprofit organization serving re refugees or immigrants directly is in the this issue, a business person, and they gathered together, maybe then also with somebody that's pretty theologically educated, and they created a table and went, we have to exemplify convicted civility, we have to deal with this issue and talk about what, what the overall question is we're trying to answer, and then we're gonna put our head to this in a lab format of how would we address an issue like this? We're gonna do readings accordingly, we're gonna do whatever, and then what if that group brought something forward and said, here are some simple steps we can begin to take as citizens to address a major issue in our community. Now, I'm not trying to say that out of that group of five, there's gonna come this huge policy that next election cycle is gonna be implemented by the, that's not what I'm saying, but creating in citizens an imagination for problem solving in a way that exemplifies convicted civility is, I think, what has to start happening. The challenge in this, and this is what this is gonna feel like tonight on some level, is like this is civic education. I'll tell you from, I'm 35 years old, I was never, never educated with a civic mindset, ever. I mean, I'm, I'm embarrassed to tell you what I didn't know. Just basic things about a government and how a government should function. So many of us have never been civically educated, which again gets into this idea of, of political gridlock if we have no imagination for the polis and the civitas, the public arena. So here's what I want you to do. Gather together in some groups of three. You'll see um, on this, there's a list. This is gonna take a little bit of time. So three to four people. Here's what I want you to try to do. Um, let's say this. Here's the, how we're gonna do this. From this point back, you guys are gonna deal with looking at this front page on political community. You're gonna gather together in threes from this row back and you're gonna try to come up with a simple definition from six points of if somebody just asked you, what is a political community? And I'm gonna ask each kind of group, what would you say a political community is? So you're gonna try to boil it down, come up with a simple definition on political community. Make sense? And this, definition of political community and why it's important, okay? This group up here, you're gonna deal with the topic of government. So that's the second one. What is government and why is it important? So from that point forward, gathering groups of three, deal with government, and then the rest of this side, do citizenship, okay? What is it and why is it important? Okay, gathering groups of three, look through that, it's gonna take some time for you to do it. We're gonna give you a decent amount of time to go after this. Very good, you'll have to introduce yourself to each other.
guys, each one of these has front and back. So...
Okay. Um, let, me, let me start by saying this. We have an hour and a half. That's not a lot of time. You can sense that when we're in the midst of this. So um, remember, we're going for discernment over mastery in the midst of this. So I'm going to go after a couple of these groups to try to give simple definitions. What we're trying to do here is for the whole good, for the commons, right, of us in this room, to help us just get our head around these concepts. Now, here's what we're doing from there. These are guidelines put out by an organization called the Center for Public Justice that has existed in Washington, D.C. That's a very thoughtful organization and is, in a lot of ways, one of the things that they try to do is, through a Christian perspective, civically educate Christians on ideas like this. So they put together guidelines on a host of issues, some policy issues as well, um, to try to do this. So the reason I'm handing you these is not just for this exercise, but that you might go home and in a slower fashion read through these things to help you develop discernment, definition, imagination. But for tonight, we're going to try to do it as simply as we can. Now, I'm going to ask groups, and when they're done giving it, and we are done with kind of this section dealing with political community, I'm going to let the whole group speak into that, if you think there's something that would round out a definition a little bit more. So let's start with the group in the back. What do you sense, uh, what's a political community? Okay, no, that's great. Okay. I probably shouldn't be trying to write a definition but points, but public commons of people who are trying to determine how to structure the common good or how to structure life. Like, how do we actually all live together? Okay. Next group. That's great. So a group of people, just get really practical here, when a group of, a public group of people get together and are seeking the common good, they use the word who are developing policies that we have to all live according to, to function together, to flourish would be language that we'd want to use. So I just want to make a point of that. Who develop policies, a way you go about it. Policy, just for those of you who may go, does politics matter? Demands politics. Okay, politics is the action of doing this, of doing political community, right? 
Next group. Yeah. So we're, this is going to get us into the next group of talking about government. So it's a group of citizens responding to government, government responding to citizens for the sake of the common good. Here's a, just a simple definition that gets it, I think, what a lot of people are saying, is it's a gathering of citizens. Okay, We just heard government, and now we're going to hear citizens here in a minute. So I'm going to say this. It's a gathering of citizens who seek justice for all. Now, biblically speaking, this is a really rich word. Justice and righteousness in the Bible are very much um, synonymous in a lot of ways. And so if you just think it's a gathering of citizens who are seeking to do right to everybody that lives in the midst of that public space. So anybody have um, just statements on that? Don't get super nuanced here because I know we're going general. We we do a whole class on that easy. Like when I say class, I don't mean class time, class, like semester long class just on that. But thoughts? Yep. 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 
So, yeah, let, let me just say something on that. So, the, if you have the love of strangers and hospitality, the reality is we have to live in a public commons without ever, where everybody doesn't agree on this and doesn't, and has real, so the issue is how do we develop a structure, which is part of this, I mean, justice for all would be that love, you're trying to seek a gathering of citizens who seek the best interest of everybody and all, everybody together, which necessitates a reality that not everybody gets exactly their way, right? And decisions are going to have to be made. Somebody has to make a decision on those things. So let's, let's keep moving through this, and we're going to have some moments in the following weeks to have a lot more discussion, but I want to get at these just to try to define and develop a little bit of an imagination. So government. Okay, so a government is accountable to citizens, and say what you just said again. Okay. Another group. Is there anybody else that wants to add to that? Okay, yeah, so a manager and an operator of a society. Manager and operator of this society. Just really quick, I'm, I'm going to speak to you in a minute, just real briefly from the Bible's perspective on government, what it says. Um, but government, if you think about anything, if you have any organization, any group of people, and you get to a point and go, this has to be, and this is where this word can be helpful, just to get our heads around it. This thing needs to be managed. You begin to have leadership, right? People who oversee the management of that organization, that school system, that church, whatever that is. Government is a group of people seeking to structure for the common good, to structure for the common good so that this can actually take place. It's the leadership who and the government in a republic, as it talks about in there, or a democracy even more, is accountable to its citizens to reflect an overall sense of justice, right, of what is the common good. Citizenship. How about you guys? Okay, 
So a citizen is one who's a part of this public community, who has the privileges of whatever they're receiving by just being a part. And then a good citizen may have responsibilities as well. So next group, anything you guys would add to that picture? Get all the way. That's fine. Yep, that's great. Um, so they're participants with privileges and responsibilities. Very good. And she fleshed out any way you guys would color it. Let me, um, I, I want to make sure to, to, to make this point, and we're trying to create a, a perspective on some things that I don't know sometimes if we're all just thinking in the midst of it, but I just, I want you to know a lot of people who live as citizenship and get privileges, let me just say it like this, depending upon the level of privileges you have, if you're really, really privileged, you may be able to care about policy less and less and get more and more apathetic. Let me tell you this, the people that feel like they have less, less privileges in a system really care about policy, really care, because they aren't a recipient of what they presume all the privileges are specifically. So I just say that to make a point on apathy. You can't get away when you live in a public commons from rules being established in order to seek the common good. Okay, you, that's all I'm trying to say in there is you can't get away from it. So the desire for apathy rather than contribution, which I would say does get into good citizenship, of you have responsibilities in this, that if this public commons is going to function good, and you'll see this in Romans chapter 13, we have to be subject to our authorities. And then the authorities have responsibilities to seek the best interest and the common good of the people. The government's accountable to citizens. Citizens are accountable to government. Let me just say this really quick. If, if you look at the way this is structured in the three terms, citizens are individuals who live in the midst of 
a civitas, a community. That's why they're called citizens. The, the statement citizenship presumes you can't be a citizen unless you're a part of a community. It presumes that. Even if you're born into it, you're born into a community of people that live, you live amongst the people. So it demands that, but it recognizes you're an, an individual in the midst of that. Government is a statement that now that there is this grouping, this gathering, this public commons of people, we need structures, therefore we need people to structure this society, if you will. What those two things together, the interaction of those, are what create the political community. Okay, it's what, it's what creates it. So I, I'm doing that, and this may seem incredibly elementary, incredibly elementary, but if the statement on individualism is true, anti-love, let's just establish a, of what the critique was, lack of hospitality, right? Either you're gonna lead to anarchy, or you're gonna say, we have this for a reason. So let me read to you, um, from Romans chapter 12, and just listen to me for a minute. This is Romans chapter 12 and 13. I want to make probably three to four points, biblically speaking, on the role of government, but I want to read this to you first. So <clears throat> this is starting in Romans chapter 12, and just listen for a minute. So Paul starts, and he says, hate the bad, hold fast to the good, love each other as brothers, prize each other. Let me make a point here. He's speaking to the church in Rome, Okay. Love each other's brothers, prize each other more than yourselves. Be unflagging in energy, unflagging in energy, I think the word is used in there. Seething with enthusiasm, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, steadfast against oppression, devoted in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints, cultivate hospitality. Bless your persecutors, bless them and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Agree with each other in your thoughts. Do not be haughty, but accommodate yourself to modest thoughts. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Return no one evil for evil. Have good intentions in regards to all men. If it is possible, be for your part at peace with all people. Do not avenge yourself, dear friends, but give away to God's anger, since it is written, mine is the vengeance, mine the retribution, says the Lord. Then if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. So doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not let yourselves be overcome evil, but overcome evil through good. Now, the whole context of Romans chapter 12, the last half of the chapter, every Bible would put it under the heading of something about love. It's a chapter about love, okay? The context in which the, the chapter that's most robust on the biblical teaching of government comes, hear this, is in the context of love. Most people go to Romans 13 and they go, here's what, and we're going to read this in a minute, they go, obey the laws of the land, subject yourself to the authorities, the government doesn't bear the sword for nothing. And they forget the whole context in which this is written in is love. So now he says this, let every soul subject itself to the authorities that are set over it. For there is no authority except by God's will, and those which exist are appointed by God. So here's, he just said, every government that exists is appointed by God. That doesn't mean they're functioning according to the way God designs, but everyone's appointed by God. Thus, anyone who sets himself against authority is rebelling against the ordinance of God, and the rebels will bring judgment upon themselves. So you rebel against God and instituted authority, you're rebelling against God. 
That doesn't mean challenging. That doesn't mean speaking to. That doesn't mean any of that. Rebelling. The men in power are nothing for um, the men in power are nothing for good conduct to fear, but only for bad conduct. So now he establishes government is given by God. One, it's all in the context of love. Government's given by God for. So it's given by God, and it's given to punish the wrongdoer, right? So to establish justice, one part of that is retributive justice, to bring about justice against the wrongdoer. So the men who are in power are in power not to punish good, but to punish bad conduct. Do you wish not to be afraid of authority? Then continue to do good. So if you don't want to be scared of authority, continue to do good, and you will have praise from it. For authority is God's minister for your good. So the purpose is retributive justice, to punish the wrongdoer, and to bring about good. So think about this, just really simply stated in Romans chapter 12 and 13. It's all given in the context of love, and then he ends Romans 13 with love. So it's bookend by statements on love. Government is given by God to create more loving societies. The role of government given by God is to punish the wrongdoer and to bring about good to look at a world, to foster good, which in turn means you need to root out evil. So government is given by God, which means government by design of God is good. It is essential. It is necessary. Now, one thought many people have, and I just want to challenge this really quick, and then we're going to do an interview. Um, government when we talk about this, and we're going to get in this in a minute, what are government's limitations, big government versus small government? That's part of the topic that we're going to deal with. But many people will say things like, well, government was given because of sin. Okay? Government was given because of sin. I would argue if you think, and we can, we'll, we can go further into this, and we will, is there's no way government was given because of sin. And I'll say this for two reasons. One, primarily. So if in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis chapter 1, they had fulfilled the mandate to be fruitful and multiply. And they used their creative energy, which you see this fruition come about when sin does not exist. And in the new heavens and new earth, it's a full-gone society. Society's functioning with all kinds of people. It's a city, which my bet is with our creativity, we have things like cars. Are stoplights given because of sin? No. Stoplights aren't going to be given, given because of sin. Are sewage systems given because of sin, right? God created us like this. I think people went to the bathroom before the fall, right? And sewage systems are going to have to be established. Is that because of sin? No. Government is not just there to punish the wrongdoer, but to bring about the good, to structure a public commons, of which there clearly is in the end in Romans um, the, the end of, I'm sorry, the end of Revelation, there's an entire city in which there is, you can see it in Isaiah, you can see it in Revelation, there is structure to it, which necessitates then governance. So government is not just the big bad bully guy that's only there because of sin. It's given by God for good and sovereignly administered by him, yes, in a sinful world to punish evil, but also to bring forth the good. So let me state this before we bring the interviewer up. Tonight, I understand, was like building a foundation. And you may go, that was helpful. Hopefully what it does is set some definitions in which you go, wow, I don't know if I was totally thinking in those categories before. We need these categories 
if we're going to understand how to function in a public commons, and especially if we're going to understand it from a Christian perspective. So we're building on each other um, week in and week out. So I'm going to bring up Tom Parker, and I have some pretty specific uh, questions with him, and I'm going to give you guys an opportunity to talk with him as well. So would you guys welcome Tom? Would you like uh, something in front of you? Sure, if I can throw some stuff on stuff, that'd be great. These are the tools of my profession. (laughs) Books. All right. So Tom, we're gonna get right after this. I would love to do 10 minutes just on you and let people get to know you, but since we have established that we're gonna be here till eight o'clock, I'm gonna grab my phone to make sure I honor everybody's time. I would like to, so you are, you're in theological education, mm-hmm. and so we're talking a lot about just, what does the Bible say about politics? How should Christians think about politics? So let me just start with a really, really broad question. If someone came up to you as a Christian, you're also a pastor, mm-hmm. so take it this way. Somebody in your congregation comes up to you and says, according to God, do politics matter? How would you answer that? Um, I, I probably work off of two things. You know, obviously the basis of why you and I are here this evening is the resurrection. We believe Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and is Lord. Um, some New Testament scholars talk about Jesus being a rival to Caesar, but in reality, Jesus has no rivals, right? The risen Lord is Lord. He has no rivals. It was Caesar who was trying to rival God who appears in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So the first thing we start off with us as Christians, us who, who love Jesus, um, we start off with there and we go, well, the, so the resurrection of Jesus and the lordship of Jesus either should mean a, a whole lot to us or nothing to us, right? I mean, I, I've spent 24 years working for Fuller Theological Seminary. I've either wasted 24 years or for, I'm somehow mucking along and trying my best to obey Jesus in the midst of this, doing my best at stumbling at it. So I'd start with that one. The second thing I'd do is as I'd go, you know, Jesus is asked, what are the great commandments? And he gives two, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Um, and then he says, to love your neighbor as yourself. And that keeps being repeated through, starts in Leviticus. Leviticus gets bad press, but that's where we get that, is out of Leviticus. And then he brings it up, it gets mentioned twice in Matthew. It's mentioned in the beginning, and when he talks about love neighbors as yourself, he talks about the fact that God causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust. We're in Arizona, we get that. Rain is a good thing, right? If you're in the East, you think rain falls on the just, oh, he's punishing both. We get it. When rain falls on the just and the unjust, that's a gift. God decides to be kind to both just and unjust people. And then we're to look like God. We're to, to find, be folks who give that sort of love towards our neighbors, whether we like our neighbors or don't like our neighbors. Part of our job is to come around and do that. So as I would be chatting with my friends, I'd say, you know, when you look at Jesus, who says it again in Matthew 22, he says, all of this, the law and the prophets, which is his code word of saying the Old Testament, hangs on this. As we're trying to work through the Old Testament or the New Testament, we're trying to understand, well, what are the basic principles? Love God, love your neighbor. It doesn't say love God, love believers. It says love God, love your neighbor. And God loves the just and the unjust. And that's part of our task is we get to love folks, which is not always easy. Um, ask my children, they'll tell you that about loving me, it's not always easy, so. That's great. How would you get in, so love is, is a reason for the question of politics matter, but if somebody went, if all I have to do is love my neighbor, why do I have to care about 
this whole process, this whole thing like politics of everything from policy, these people fighting together, government, electing officials. Why does that matter? Um, you know, Jesus uh, tells parables. And there was a period of time in the mid-1900s where New Testament scholars said there's only one point of a parable. And no New Testament scholar believes that now. Parables by themselves just cause us to, keep, cause us to be disturbed. You read a parable, you go, oh, I think it's about this. The fact that Jesus tells us parables tells us he's calling, teaching us to be thoughtful people. Why would he give us parables? Because he believes we can think. But why does he give us scripture? Because he believes we can be thoughtful people. And thoughtful people are folks who give some thought, as you all are doing. I'm very impressed that you all are engaged in this as people of faith who love Jesus. And then it means we have to engage the reality that we live in. Um, there was a navigator missionary to um, Israel, and he was trying to share his faith. Actually, Lebanon was trying to share his faith. And Palestinian looks says, your Bible has nothing to do with me. He says, what do you mean? He says, I've been clubbed with your Bible for years. They took my land because of your Bible. And, my, and, and this guy, Waldron Scott, said, give me two weeks, and I'll talk to you. And he went back, and he read his Bible all over again to see, did his Bible have anything to do with this Palestinian? And he came back with a very different reading of the Bible, and he shared his faith, and this, this guy had a real change. Well, this guy named Waldron Scott realized, well, we've got to love our neighbor, and we, we certainly write the old little adage, uh, teach a man to fish, feed him for a day. Um, sorry, give a man a fish, feed him a day, teach him to fish, um, feed him for a lifetime. But then what if there's someone who's polluting a river upstream? You have to get engaged politically. Um, so he, this friend, Waldron Scott, actually became the president of the Evangelical um, Alliance, the World Fellowship of Evangelicals. And the only country that voted against him, actually, was the Americans. Um, every other country understood that he got them. He understood the two-thirds world. Um, and he just started to have this huge impact. He actually caused me to start thinking in new ways through the Old Testament. Most of us haven't read the prophets. It's okay. You know, it's a, it's a daunting literature. The prophets care very much about poor people, about widows, about aliens, about society and the way societies care about itself. Amos starts off with one chapter that's really odd because he doesn't talk to people in Judah or Israel. He talks about all their neighbors. He's kind of like flitting through geography in the first chapter. It's really odd. This is what I think he's doing. He's sucking them in. And they're all going, yeah, oh, those terrible people in Tyre. Oh, yeah, those lousy people in Amnon. Oh, yeah. And he's listing some stuff. It'd be like us listening to someone going, those Iranians, those Iranians are terrible. And we'd go, boy, no kidding, those Iranians. And, and those, those Al-Qaeda people, they're terrible. And we'd be listening and go, yeah, yeah. And then he zeroes in in chapter 2 where he goes to the closest neighbor, Judah, because he's, he's speaking actually to pe people in the north. And they're kind of, they probably get uncomfortable at this point. And then he goes after the people of Israel, the very people he's preaching to. And he speaks to them the way you all are conducting each other. This is treating each other. This is an abomination. The way you take care of the poor people, the way you take care of widows. So I would say scripture is causing us not merely just be a nice, loving, I have good feelings for you, but it means I have to take care of people who are on the margins and mm -hmm. who are in another place. Talk a little bit more. So you did work in the prophets and politics. Am I correct in saying uh, that? Primarily prophets, but if you do work in prophets, you can't miss the politics. politics. Yeah. So talk a little bit about the role of the prophet speaking to the powers. So specifically, I mean, you see the prophets many times in the Old Testament speaking to kings and rulers and people who are in power over other people. So talk about that. I mean, clearly you said things that they value, mm -hmm. but specifically the dynamic of 
What gave them the right to speak to powers? Why did they do it? What were they trying to accomplish? Um, we, you know, we only know prophets are good in hindsight. That's the only way those prophets ended up in the Old Testament. We discovered they're right. Because the people you wanted to listen to in the 8th century and in the 7th century were the people who were saying, don't worry, God's going to take good care of us. <laughs> and Jeremiah was a prophet who uh, was imprisoned because he was speaking to the political entities that, that were, and he kept saying, look, we're going to be destroyed. Babylon is going to win this thing. Um, the treatment of him is just really tough. He even cries out to God, this isn't fair the way I'm being treated. Um, but he says some very important things to, the, to God's people, right? This is God's country, Judah. We're in Jerusalem at this time in the seventh century. And the, there's a superpower that's up in the northwest, northeast from them. And he's saying, you know, you have this simple trust. You say this word, this is the temple of the Lord, and that's enough for you. Well, where, where did that come from? It, Hezekiah was being besieged by a different country, Assyria, in the 700s, and it was a miracle Jerusalem survived, absolutely survived from this thing. And so, unfortunately, the people of Israel extrapolated this simple thing. Well, if we survive, this is God's city. This is God's temple. We're good. And Jeremiah said, no, it doesn't work like this. If you oppress people, if you don't treat people right, and he would go after the kings, if the, you do these things, God's going to punish you. Um, Jeremiah um, keeps speaking to the powers who don't know what to do with it because the powers are freaked out by the other powers in, the, in Israel. The king, the king has to worry about all the other guys. He's got to have his little coalitions that are going. But he has no problem speaking to what he wants to speak, though he does tell the Lord, I really wish you wouldn't make me do this sort of thing. Part of it has to do with the time we are in. So if you're looking at 8th century prophets and 7th century prophets, they're railing. But remember, they're not in the same country that we're in. Right? The Old Testament is very political, but we're dealing with an established country that is God's country. I don't know how you view it. I don't, I don't think of, I think of all the world as God's country, but I don't think this is a Christian nation. I think I could probably win on that one in terms of we did surveys. So we happen to live in the nation we live in. Well, then how do we as Christians live in this nation and engage this nation? Well, we have to be thoughtful. We have to figure out how do we look at these prophets and how do we engage this? How do we look at Jesus and how do we engage it? We have the host of, of the Bible that helps us to be instructed to what it means to be a good citizen. Hmm. No, that's great, that's great. I think one of the things I was really trying to accomplish in that is that there are, there's all this language in the prophets of people speaking to powers. Will you now take it a little bit just into the New Testament of Jesus and Paul clearly have moments where they're engaged with powers mm -hmm. um, in, in speaking to them? So when we're looking at, we're, for, for the most part, when we're looking at the Old Testament, we're looking at you know, the, the people of Israel dominant, though there are times when they're not dominant. When we're looking at Jesus and we're looking at Paul, they don't have power. These are not people who are running amok with power. They are people who are going to suffer for what they do. And they're trying their best to proclaim this, I mean, not Jesus, right? Paul is trying his best to proclaim this good and gracious and generous lordship of Jesus. And he's having to interact with the powers. Um, what was really bizarre about the Christian community at that time, um, and what was offensive really to the Romans, is it broke through the structures. Because you had slaves and you had free people gathering together. And you had Jews and you had, you had Greeks. And you had men and women, and they're all gathering together to worship God. And that's, that was really not the way society was supposed to work. And, and what happened was you had a community that was kind of aberrant 
to us, that would be the appropriate thing, right? None of us can say, you're better than I am in Jesus, or I'm better than you are in Jesus. We all go, no, no, we are all equally loved in Jesus. That was a pretty radical thing to do in Roman times. That was a very different way to, in, to engage society. They were not a place, that we, we meet occasionally very rich women, very rich men who appear to have power and are somehow living their best as Jesus people, but on the whole, they're not in that same place. So how are they engaging the city? Um, they're engaging it by proclaiming this news, by being a very different community that sometimes was extremely attractive, right? You watch in Jerusalem, 3,000 people come thronging to this community. Why? Because their very nature was attractive. And sometimes because the fact that they're proclaiming Jesus is Lord, uh, that doesn't sit well with authorities. And so they end up in the prisons. Um, but their responses to power always amaze me. I'm shocked by that. Why did people care that they were proclaiming Jesus as Lord? Like you just said, they were proclaiming Jesus as Lord, which got them in a lot of trouble. Many of them, you know, many of them killed, put in prison. Why that statement? Why did that statement get them killed? Um, well, I, I think one, obviously from our perspective, and we know it to be true, there's the Roman mythology that Caesar is Lord. And that's one of those things you have to say. And so when you're proclaiming the truth, Jesus is Lord, that puts you at odds with, the, with what's going on. Um, if you, you watch Paul, though, in his interactions in the book of Acts, just watch him some, watch his behavior as he's tr engaging with various authorities. He's extremely respectful when he's in prison. He's extremely, it's an odd thing, but he speaks truth to them. But that, that truth, that very truth is going to cause them problems if they assent to that truth. Because it might mean they'd lose their power, right? If you're, if you're this local regional leader and you're having to report back to Caesar, you're not going to be able to say, you know, boy, this guy was right. You're really not the guy. Jesus is. That's not going to work. Um, we happen to know that there are, there are exceptions that go along the way, and there are people who die for being that exception. But basically, we put ourselves in a conflict at this point. Um, it wasn't always that way, but I mean, it happened in those cases. Yeah, no, that's great. Guys, I want to I give you a moment. If you want to ask Tom any questions, or right now, we've got about 10 minutes left um, to when the class is supposed to end. So anybody have any questions for him about what he's speaking about regarding the prophets, politics, anything? I have two specific more questions for him. One is... I want to ask him as a Christian how he thinks through the process that we're in right now. Specifically, how do you determine as a Christian how to vote? And then secondly, I want to ask him as a pastor um, how he engages his people through the process that we're in right now. But before I get there, you can ask the question for me or you can ask another question. So. Okay. Thank you. 
Um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure that our, our age is per, any more precarious than others. Because when you, you know, you start going back and you read through the other things, other times you go, there have been some other very unsettling times. Um, I think how we might respond to that as people of faith is that you mentioned one. I, if, you're, if we're serving and loving our neighbors and we look like, I mean, if, if Redemption Arcadia disappeared tomorrow, would you be missed? Right? And if you would be, that's a really good thing. Your neighbors would go, where, where'd that church go, right? So if, if, if you're serving and loving your neighbors, there, there are two ways that Christians of late in America have tried to do their stuff. And unfortunately, one of them has been coercion. Well, darn it, we're gonna get back to being a Christian society. You may, and you may like that tech. My theory is, do you like people trying to control your life? Or do you like it when people serve you and love you? Which one is more likely to get you off the bus and get interested in meeting with other people? Now, if you all, and, and I'm, obviously you're doing that, if you all continue to grow in your, uh, your reputation of being people who love your neighbors and love the stranger, widow, and the orphan, you win something. There's something very powerful. I mean, Moody's early stuff, he was reaching out to kids who were in the worst places of Chicago, and he was bringing them to church, and he was teaching them life skills. So they came to Jesus, well, why? Because he loved them. And so when he talks about Jesus, they go, oh, that makes sense. So, right, if you and I just try to, like, start yelling at someone about Jesus, what does that mean? But if you and I have been loving someone, right, for a year, two years, three years, and then we start talking about Jesus, at least there's rubber to the road. People go, well, when you talk about Jesus, that makes sense to me. I get it. So if you're a church, instead of individuals, but your community is the sort of community that people go, I don't know, those Redemption Arcadia people are Christians, but they're okay. I really don't like Christians much, but they really seem to care about Somalians and this local neighborhood. And I don't know, it's not what I expect Christians. They seem to be nice folk, right? I mean, we don't have a great reputation. You think Christians, right? Do we have a great reputation? Nah. That, well, that's part of our problem. But if we had that reputation where we looked like Jesus, when we talk about Jesus, it would be meaningful. And I don't mean that for us just as individuals, as a community. Redemption has this name. Wow, they care. I want to say something um, just on that on that notion too of it, it's interesting I've had Tom said it last week it was said again tonight is that what makes America great is not the American people the people are no different but the system okay one of the things in this class I want you if that is an intriguing statement to you provocative you rub against it whatever you've got to get it what is the system okay the system is political it is a development it has to do with the Constitution has to do with all of that. And if we're in a, a state right now where we go, there's some gridlock, there are some points of where we have to go back and look at the political community, how it's structured, and go, what enables justice for all to the best level? Because people will make statements like that, and I think there's tons of people in a room, this is what I was, a lot of why we're doing this tonight, that even go, what does that even mean, the structure? And then some people define it just as economics, some people set it up as the way the system's set up with judicial and executive branches. And, you know, that's the system. Is it the entirety of it? How much of it matters? How much of it's changed? What I'm saying to you is in order to be citizens, I'm not saying you have to be experts, but we have to begin to understand something. The other thing I want to say um, on the level is if that's true, I, I want to say something here pastorally and biblically. 
you've got to be really careful when you talk about America, and I know this is a part of our history, and I want to challenge it, of using biblical language that was used for the people of God for a nation. I, I'm just telling, because if you do, that's not how the Bible, so city on a hill for a nation was never tagged to the American nation biblically. It was tagged to the people of God. Now, my statement in that does not mean there isn't something great that is not a model for other nations. But when you begin to do that, that's what's called civil religion. And a lot of Christians, in the end, when in unbelievers engage them, they'll say, it feels like they're worshiping the United States more than they're worshiping Jesus. That's a, that's a challenge and a problem. So I'm saying that that's, that's rooted in history and even recent history, that as Christians, you have to begin to ask questions about that. What does this look like, you know, to do this? And are we taking statements and overdoing a point of not just honoring our nation and respecting our nation, but beginning to worship a nation or use language? And we may just be guilty at points. So I say that to go, that's something, again, that we'll, when we talk about nationalism versus citizenship, what does that really look at that we'll, we'll develop more? But again, what we're trying to do here is develop discernment, and I'm trying to throw things out there that make everybody think and ask questions from a biblical Christian perspective of going, what is that, and what does that mean? Were you going to say something? Um, no, I, 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 you know what, we can learn a lot from the church that failed miserably in Nazi Germany. Um, if, you, there, if you want to read Helmut Thielicke or to read about Karl Barth or Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and the, the church just kind of folded under Nazi Germany, under as the Nazis came. So we have to remember who our Lord is. I'm, I w lived in England for a year and found out I was intensely American. It was a big shock. I mean, I, I loved England, but I realized I, I want Thanksgiving. I don't care about many England. You're Canadian? Great. Come to my house. You're North American. We're going to do Thanksgiving. So I really, I really like the country I live in, but that's not what I worship. I worship Jesus, and I'm grateful. I mean, my first reaction after the debates of late was I looked at my wife and said, I love this country. Where, what, how many countries, there are others, that can have two opposing people have this argument, shake hands afterwards, and I don't care which one you, you were there for, but how great, what a country we live in that these two people can have this disagreement with each other and we get to watch this. That's awesome. That's great. I want to honor your guys' time um, in the midst of this. We are, this class is building. So it's a four-session class. We'll meet next week, then we're off for two, and then we're on November 14th. So there'll be post-election. We'll talk about it, and we're going to get into it. Before you leave, I'm going to, I have these sheets of paper, and this is what I told you about. I want to try to create, we don't have a ton of time, so the ability to do this in a class is virtually impossible. But let me tell you what I'm, I'm trying to propose here for however many takers there are. Last week, we had a sign-up sheet in the back that had name, email, and your vocation, the occupation that you do. Um, and I'd love for those of you who didn't fill your name out on that to fill it out. And for those of you who did that are interested in this, you're going to have to go by your name and mark a topic. So this is going to take you a couple more minutes tonight to look at, but I'll put it back there with it. Here's what this is, is I'm asking for a little group presentation so that you would gather together in three to four people. Let me read this. Preparing a 10-minute group presentation that summarizes the findings of your inquiry and begins a discussion about what your group recommends the community at Redemption Arcadia do as a result. So here's what this is. You're, 
three to four people, two to four, let's just say, are gathering together and taking a specific issue. Here are suggested topics of an issue. Jobs in the economy is one. Taxes in the budget and debt spending is another one. Healthcare and Medi Medicare and Social Security is another one. Immigration and border security is another one. Education and the family is another one. Energy and the environment is one. Religion and public life is another one. So big hot button issues. I'm asking that you guys would get together, hopefully not just people that you're like, but people of even different vocations, different mindsets, that you would sit together and I'll even, if we get enough groups, I'll maybe even stop at points. You could meet before or after this and begin a conversation. A lot of it can happen over email where you're trying to propose what's a question we're ultimately trying to get at this issue. And then you're going to make movement specifically under the point of saying, what could a church like ours do when it comes to an issue like jobs in the economy? Just something you can do. We're not saying solve the problem of jobs in the economy, but what's something that we could do to contribute to the public commons together? And the idea of it is what I said before. It'd be amazing with jobs in the economy to find out who's in this room and have a multiple domain approach to this. So this is a lab, the labs I was talking about, that I'd love to create here, but it's going to take some more time for you. I have readings on every one of these issues put together that I will give your group stacks of these that you can begin to do research on if you're interested further in it. But I want it to happen in community. So I'm going to be, I don't want to be a total stickler here, but I don't really want to give these readings to just an individual. I want you to work collectively together in a group to address these issues. So I'm going to put these on the back. It'll explain a lot of it. You'd have to look at the topics um, according to kind of course themes. And if you're interested in doing that, all you have to do tonight is get your information, name, email, occupation, and then ideally if you have a topic on there that you go, I'm really interested in, write that by the side of your name somewhere that I can see it. And I'm going to begin to try to put groups together. If you already have a group that you want, um, specifically you go, hey, I know I'd like to gather with these couple people. Let me know and we'll work at it. I'll get you the stuff and you can go after it. Does that make sense? Any questions on that specifically? Okay, let me pray and we are through. God, I just pray for what we have set out as the goals of this. Um, I pray that we'd be loving people that was talked about a ton tonight and hospitable people. Uh, God, people who cross boundaries and invite uh, others in. God, I pray that we'd be civil and we would be respectful. And I pray, God, uh, for deep amounts of discernment and character. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, y'all have a good night.